Good morning, church. Good morning. <laughs> no, you're you're good. I'm I'm, for, I'm formulating my thoughts because uh, you know when when you know when you're in worship, uh, you know praise and worship like that, where um, you know the Lord just gets a hold of uh, your heart and your mind, your whole being. You know you can't I can I can't help, and I'm sure you guys are the same. Where it's like. I'm questioning those lyrics in the sense of how is my life relating to the words? The words are saying in that last song that really hit me. It's like my heart's longing for you. And my question this morning is, what is your heart longing for? Right? Because there are so many things that are tugging for our attention, for our time, for our affections. But do we really live the words that we sing? And I'm not, uh, the Holy Spirit is the one that either uh, elevates and lifts up or convicts. I'm not trying to do either or. I'm just sharing with you what the Lord was showing me as I'm over here praising and I'm starting to cry because I'm like, man, Lord, I'm not worthy and none of us are worthy. But uh, the, the, the good thing is, it's like he's always trying to get a hold of us. He's always trying to get our attention and he's always trying to prune and, and, and peel back layers so we can uh, develop a more healthy spiritual fruit. And as it was said by Michelle earlier, that we go out into the world and share our faith, rub elbows with people that aren't saved and be like, you know, just love on people. You know, I, I, we were at a, we were at a football game yesterday. Uh, some of Veronica, uh, one of Veronica's cousins, her, uh, you know, her, uh, the kids, you know, they play for uh, a youth football league in San Jose and, uh, it was actually right right across the street from where I grew up, Oak Grove High School in, in South San Jose. And it was really cool just to be out there, you know, and it's been a long time. We're always saying, oh, yeah, we'll go. We'll go support. We'll go. We'll be out there. But we're, we always seem to be busy. And then this past, you know, yesterday, this last weekend, um, you know, we weren't busy. So we went over there. We were there from one to six. And it was just a great time. You know, it was a great time to be there. And, uh, you know, her, her cousins aren't saved, you know, and I heard some things that, you know, Whatever. I don't necessarily want to hear, but we were there in support of their children. And, and it's how are they going to come to Christ if we're just like, well, we're just in our little bubble. <laughs> you know, we can invite them to church and that's cool. We should invite them to a church service. But it's like, are we going out of our way to, to be next to people that aren't saved. And I'm not saying, you know, because people say crazy stuff like, oh, yeah, I went to, I, I ran up in the barn, I ran up in the strip club trying to witness to people. No, I'm not saying that. You know, you, you got to be led by the Holy Spirit. What I'm trying to say simply is, like that song says, we, we got to love people. We got to love people to the point where we're being moved to do something about it and not merely just be like, oh, well, yeah, I, I hope they get saved, Right. A real saving faith moves believers into action. So, uh, I don't know, just felt led to share that. <laughs> but I'm excited this morning. Uh, we're in Revelation chapter 11. Uh, we took a break last week for, uh, for Easter Sunday, and that was great. I, I mean, it was uh, since the heavy presence of the Holy Spirit move upon this place and upon people and i was just grateful to be a part of that service last week but uh can't revel in, in past blessings we're here 
today, present day, and we're going to be in Revelation chapter 11. We'll be going down through verses 1 through 14. Try to make it try to make it not as long as possible. But you know what? We're letting the Holy Spirit take charge. And as I was studying, there was really no place I could. I, I saw a natural break in the scripture. So we're going to go through this chunk of scripture this morning. So when you get there and if you're able to, please stand for the reading of God's word. And we'll go ahead and begin. Uh, this message is entitled simply the two witnesses. All right. And we're starting in verse one. Once again, Revelation chapter 11. And it says, and this is speaking of the Apostle John. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out for it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to uh, to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for one thousand two hundred and sixty days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Verse seven. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Verse 11. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that we can know you truly. And that's something that is supernaturally a work of your own, that you allow men and women to see the truth of who you are, the truth of who Jesus Christ is, the truth of the helper, the Holy Spirit, and how we're in desperate need of a relationship with you. Father, we thank you for Uh, These revelations found in your scriptures, Lord, thank you that you are in full control over all circumstances, even when things seem gloom and, 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 and drab and it seems like there is no hope. As believers in Jesus, we, we must know that there's always hope and the hope is your son. 
And in this life, we're going to see things and we're going to go through things because it's a constant battle. There's warfare all around us, but we need to just take hold and know that we're victorious. We, we fight from the vantage point of victory. Lord, so as we get into this study this morning, I pray that you would show each individual here how this uh, these scriptures are applicable to their own lives, how they should uh, be looking for whatever revelation you're trying to reveal to them, whatever miracle you're trying to show them. And may we all leave here changed and transformed by the teaching and the reading of your word. And may we all give honor and glory to you for you're the only one who deserves it. Father, we pray this all in your son, Jesus Christ's mighty name. Amen. Amen. All right. So just a quick recap to bring us up to speed. So we're kind of in the right context of where we're at in the book of Revelation. So two weeks ago, we left off and we, we went through Revelation chapter 10. We learned about the mighty angel and the small scroll. Remember that? Um, the mighty angel represented the Lord's great power and control over all the earth as he had one foot on the land and one foot on the sea. It kind of gives you a visual. So this is a mighty angelic being and, and his hand and his foot on the land and foot on the sea is just a, a testament of God being in control of the whole earth. The whole globe is his right. He's in full control. He's not fighting from behind. <laughs> As I said, uh, he, we're, he is, we are, we're fighting from the vantage point of victory, even though it may not look that way in the circumstances of life. Uh, the Apostle John was told to eat this small scroll or book that contained information only for his eyes. He wasn't told to write it down. Uh, he was told to digest it. And it would taste sweet in his mouth, but bitter in his stomach, which meant that salvation comes from Jesus Christ alone. And that salvation is sweet to the soul because we're saved from the wrath of God. We're, we no longer have to uh, be in a position where we're questioning what is our eternal state. We know that we're at peace with God because of the work that Jesus Christ has done on the cross if we receive that gift of salvation gladly and accept Jesus as Savior and Lord. It's bitter because of how that salvation comes. It came through uh, the death of uh, the Lord's Son, Jesus Christ. Much things he went through uh, to, 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 to grasp that and, and gain that for us. Today, we will learn about these two faithful witnesses. This is where we are today, this morning, and how God called them to stand boldly for him against Satan. John is told to measure the temple of God and its worshipers, but to exclude measuring the outer court which will be trampled down by the nations for 42 months. God sends two witnesses to Jerusalem to testify to the nations about who God is, who his son Jesus Christ is. And these witnesses are given mighty strength, supernatural strength to strike down those who oppose Jesus Christ. But as we just read in the scripture, eventually the beast will kill them and the people of the world that is, the people who love this world or are living their best life now, who have no, no desire to serve Jesus Christ but are living for themselves, they will rejoice at this martyrdom. Excuse me. They will, they will be cheering the fact that these witnesses will die. But after three and a half days, these witnesses are revived and they're caught up to heaven. There will be a great earthquake that will kill a tenth of the city or destroy the tenth of the city and 7,000 people will be killed. 
When this happens, as the scripture says, fear will strike the hearts of many of the people. And this is very interesting. You have to note this because this is the first time this has happened in the book of Revelation that we see in the text. We read of individuals repenting and giving glory to God. Before this, they just scoffed. They scoffed. They mocked God. They were, they were bitter. They were angry. But this is the first time we see that there are actual some individuals that repent of their wickedness. We have several main points this morning. And the first one is this. During this time in context in the book of Revelation, this time in history, things will get worse before they get better. And, and, again, I, and again, I can't help but think back to that last song that we sung. We, we sing it. Jesus come soon. But I hope we understand for Jesus to come soon, things are going to get worse. I hate to be the bearer of bad news. It's not actually bad news. I think it's more about the perspective that we have. If we're clinging to this life, it's bad news because we're like, oh, man, all this stuff's going to be wrecked. All my plans. I'm learning that, you know, expectations are bad in the sense of I need to go with what God is going to do. Because when I have an expectation and the expectation isn't met, I'm not giving God room to do what he's going to do because he's not telling me to be keeping my, you know, casting my cares in this world. The Bible is clear that, you know, a soldier in the Lord's army doesn't uh, doesn't, uh, you know, allow himself to be caught up in the affairs of the world, the affairs of this life. And so when we sing Jesus comes soon, we need to be soldiers in the army of God, understanding that things are going to get worse. <laughs> it's going to get crazier. Like I said, I, I said, and I'm, I'm not trying to, I am no, in no way tooting my own horn or anything like that. I'm just sharing that I, that Lord revealed this to me when, whenever this pandemic started, the whole pandemic thing, whatever side you sit on with it, whether it was made up, whether, whether it was real, whether the mask thing is real or fake, whether the uh, vaccination is real or fake, that is Disneyland compared to what is going to happen in the near future. And we are going to experience it unless the Lord takes us. We're going to experience what's going to happen. And so, again, understanding that things are going to get a lot worse before they get better. But remember, we fight from the stance of victory so you don't need to be afraid or have fear because perfect love casts out all fear right jesus christ has given us a spirit of hope of triumph of victory not a spirit of fear so again we have to understand where our strength comes from and we'll be okay with things as they go down but simply put it would have been easy for many people to have lost hope, speaking of where we're at this morning in the book of Revelation. You see, John is told to measure the temple of God, the altar and the worshipers, but not the outer courts, because it would, be, it would have been given over to the Gentiles, and they will trample over this holy city, this outer court of the temple. This is the same city where the Lord was crucified, and this most certainly is Jerusalem. Ironically, it is also called Sodom and Egypt because of its sexual immorality and idolatry. All these things. And again, you know, uh, Solomon talked about it because Solomon was given, you know, wisdom because he asked for wisdom. So in the book of you know, Ecclesiastes, he talks about there's nothing new under the sun. So all the things that are going to go on in this context in the future, it's going to be stuff that it's old. It's the same old sins, sexual sins, idolatry, people worshiping anything else but the true and living God, whether it's themselves, their own construct of what they want to do, their own success, whether it's a little wooden statue or a car technology, <laughs> they just worshiping all kind of other stuff, right? And we're seeing this going on in the text this morning. 
With the destruction of the outer court, this could have broken the spirit of many. They could have just been like, oh man, it's just, it's all bad. Look at what's happened. Look at what's going on. You see, many times when things seem hopeless and out of control, some of us get overwhelmed and we tend to give up. I think we can all relate to that to some extent. I'm not saying everyone in here has given up, but I'm saying I think everyone in this room has been tempted to give up when things get difficult and things get trying and things get hard because it's like my expectation of what I thought was going to happen. It was not met. My circumstances are not what I thought they should be. And it's easy to, oh, man, I just I can't take it. You know, they say. The Lord doesn't give you more than you can handle, but I, I, I kind of don't agree with that. I think the Lord gives us a lot that we can't handle, so we run to Him. You know, there's plenty of times in my life where hey, it's just simple stuff. You know, my kids acting up, you know. <laughs> you know, Veronica will tell you, Kalos and Tirza, when they go at it, I was just telling Lou this morning, Kalos was laying on a matchbox car with, on his face, Tirza jumped on his, on his head, next thing you know, he's got a big old welt on his cheek. And I got to keep myself from screaming my lungs out. <laughs> I'm like, Lord, help me. Give me your patience. Give me wisdom. Help me to, uh, you know, love these children and discipline in, in them, dis- discipline them in a manner that would be pleasing to you. Because as the Bible says, the wrath of man will not produce the righteousness of God. So I believe the Lord gives us plenty of things we can't handle so we can look to him. Amen. Who do you run to when the circumstances of your life are out of control? You don't have to say it out loud. Just think about it. Who do you run to? What is the first thing you think about when stuff is out of whack? And you're like, what is going on? Amen. For the believer, it should always be Jesus Christ. Even if it's you get the news from the doctor and it's not favorable. Or the relationship in your family is broken and shattered. And it seems like there's no hope. And no restoration in the near future. The first one we should turn to is Jesus Christ. You see, he alone is our strong tower and our mighty fortress. We got to know this. We got to believe this. We have to see this as true in order for us to have the right perspective. Because, I mean, you can throw money at every circumstance. And money is, 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 is it can help. But money is not the end all. Right. You can have all the money in the world, but money does not cure all things. Only the Lord Jesus Christ has the power to do that if that's his will. All right. The second main point is this. Even when things seem hopeless, God comes through and he provides. You see, again, with the outer court being destroyed, it seemed as if the enemy was on the verge of taking over. Like it was just it was just going to be a dark day. But if we go back to the first verse of our passage, we see that John was given instructions to measure the temple of God, the altar and those who worship there with a rod like a staff. Now, what could this possibly mean? Well, using a measuring rod in prophetic literature is a way of describing God's concern and care. Oh, I love that. Wow. It's like, that's what it means. You see, that's it's just so interesting to me because it's like we can't just we have to be led by the Holy Spirit when we when we study scripture, when we read the scripture. Because if I was just reading with my with my my natural eyes and just like, oh, well, what's the point of you measuring the temple, the outer? I mean, what is what does this mean? But it, 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 it has to do with God's care. His concern for his people, for the people that love him, for the people that call out to him, Abba, Father. 
and desire a, a deep, real relationship with him. Remember Ezekiel's vision in the temple and Zechariah's vision of Jerusalem. Zechariah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, I'll read it, and it says, And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, Where are you going? And he said to me, To measure Jerusalem and to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked to me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and the livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. I mean, that says it right there. <laughs> the Lord's going to provide. The Lord's going to protect, even though there's going to be those that are going to come in and try to kill and plunder and destroy. But the Lord will keep his own secure. That's a beautiful thing. That's a great promise that the Lord has right there. You see, so God's concern is expressed for the temple, the altar, and the worshipers in the holy city. We also see God sending two witnesses to the battlefield. This is God providing, right? The outer temple, the outer courts have already been destroyed, but the Lord is sending two witnesses. They are not named, but their powers remind us of two Old Testament prophets. Prophets, excuse me, Elijah and Moses. Elijah was given power to stop the rain. We can remember that. He was also able to call down fire from heaven. And Moses had power to bring plagues on Egypt and turn the water to blood. They were both also seen together at the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. We remember that in Scripture. From this information, we can conclude no matter who these witnesses are for God, they are empowered by him to bring honor and glory to his name. And, that, and that's, that's the main point with that, is that it, it really doesn't matter per se who these two witnesses are. It's the fact of who they were sent by and who gives them the ability to perform uh, the, the feats that they uh, per perform in, in this time during the Great Tribulation. And the third main point is this. Even when physical death sets in for the believer... The power of Jesus Christ will resurrect them to himself. That's a, I mean, that's it. That's it. We were talking about this last week. I, I, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't morbidly think of death. I, I want to believe that I have a, 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 a clear understanding that I'm not going to live forever here. And I need to be certain and crystal clear on where my, where my home is going to be and, and where I'm headed. And this is just, this is beautiful to me because it, it helps me. I don't have anxiety about, about dying or, or constantly thinking about my health and this and that because I know that whenever that time comes, the power of Jesus Christ is going to resurrect me to himself. These two messengers from God, like Elijah and Moses, witnessed with great power by the Holy Spirit against unbelief in Jerusalem during a three and a half year period in the great tribulation. When their mission is done, they are killed by the beast and exposed in the street for three and a half days. At this point, again, it seems as if darkness has taken over, that the enemy has, has victory over uh, the people of God and of this world. With the deaths of God's two witnesses, it seems as if they have failed because they died. 
You see, but the Lord is victorious in the end. And it's simply this. This, this whole premise should sound familiar to us, right? Because they are victorious because God vindicates them by their resurrection and ascension to heaven. And because of the many giving glory to God when they see what happens. In this respect, these witnesses resemble Christ himself who was slain through Satan's manipulation of Judas, dead for three days with an earthquake accompanying his resurrection and ascension to God. You see those parallels when Jesus, you know, went down into the grave and when he came back up and thousands were converted shortly after at the day of Pentecost. And so again, we see how the scripture supports itself and it's just a beautiful thing. It's just a, I don't know, I just get excited when, when I, when I can understand, wow, Lord, this is what's going on. You have a perfect plan and how it's going to come about. All right, let's go ahead and unpack these verses. We're starting in verse one and it says, then I was given a measuring rod like a staff and I was told rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. So we see this phrase, a staff like a measuring rod. So again, in Ezekiel chapter, chapters 40 down to 43, there is a passage uh, where a temple is measured. The temple in Ezekiel is best understood as the temple of the millennial earth. And the temple of Revelation chapter 11 seems to be before this temple uh, of Ezekiel. Yet there are, very, there are a lot of similarities with this temple here and the temple uh, in uh, the book of Ezekiel. Um, I'll read these two verses found in Ezekiel chapter 40, verses 17 down through 19. And it says, Then he brought me into the outer court, and behold, there were chambers and a pavement all around the court. Thirty chambers faced the pavement, and the pavement ran along the side of the gates, corresponding to the length of the gates. This was the lower pavement, and then he measured the distance from the inner front of the lower gate to the outer front of the inner court, a hundred cubics on the east side and on the north side. So this is just explaining the outer courts and the measurements there. And there are a few other biblical examples of measuring. In Zechariah chapter 2, a man measured Jerusalem, a scene that showed God's coming judgment on the city. In Revelation chapter 21, the new Jerusalem is also measured. So now we see that uh, uh, the Apostle John was given the direction, rise and measure the temple of God. Sometimes in the Old Testament, the idea of measuring communicates ownership, protection, and per, uh, pers uh, preservation, preservation, I should say. When Habakkuk prophesied, he stood and measured the earth. We read this in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 6. It says, he stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. The idea here was that the Lord owns the earth and can do with it as he pleases. When the temple is measured, it shows that God knows every dimension and he is in charge. So when you think about it, Think about your life. God is in charge of your life. If you've submitted your life to him and Jesus Christ is your savior and your Lord, he is in control. That's why this whole idea of that, 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 that unclean spirit of fear having to be thrown off of you is so important because we don't have a spirit of fear. 
You have ordained days that you're to live out. Same with myself. And we're going to live out that time according to God's will. So we don't have to worry. We don't have to have anxiety and be popping pills to make sure we're not wigging out and tripping out. I understand some people, they just have a situation where they just have them on certain drugs. But you know what? We have the power of the Holy Spirit living in us. Again, we have to understand what are we coming into agreement with? If we're in God's word daily, if we're communing with Jesus Christ daily, then our minds are going to be fortified. And when those those thoughts of fear are trying to penetrate, we're going to rebuke them and we're going to know that we're trusting in the Lord and we're not going to have to be stressed out and scared about situations. And the application is this. Amen. Again, God is in charge. This is one of the glorious, mighty themes of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 11, verse 17 says, saying, we give thanks to God. Excuse me. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. He reigns. He reigns. So it's like we'd be wise just to fall in line and just be a part of that parade instead of going upstream it's not a good look again we we see the use of the title almighty for god in greek the word for almighty is panokrator if i'm pronouncing that right pantokrator <laughs> and it describes the one who has his hand on everything i mean i don't know it's funny i, I think of like i don't know shaquille o'neal or michael jordan palming a basketball Right when you can palm a basketball, you got a big old hand. You're able to hold that basketball. You're pl- holding it like a yo-yo. Well, that's that's God. That might be a a silly cheap analogy, but that's like God. He's holding this earth in his palm of his hand. He could crush it like a marble if he wants. He's in full control of all things. Nine out of ten times this word is used in the New Testament. It is used in the Book of Revelation. Speaking of Almighty for God. The temple will be the scene of great horror and great glory, but God is in charge, working through both the good and the bad actions of mankind. We see the temple of God here. The identity of this temple is as is an important matter of interpretation. Many see this temple as a symbol of the church, and Paul describes the church as a temple. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 down through 21 tell us this. So then... You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. That's a whole study in itself, but that's just a beautiful thing how Jesus is the cornerstone of the church and we, you know, we're built around him. He's the head of the body. See, Peter describes the church as a temple, um, living stones. We know about that, right? Being built up uh, into a spiritual house. But we have to ask this question in regarding uh, the, the temple here. However, if this temple in Revelation chapter 11 is a symbolic representation of the church, why should it be measured? What is the significance of the courts and the altar? And if the church itself is the temple, who are the worshipers? Who are, who are the people worshiping there? There is too much specific detail here for this to match the generalized picture of the church as the temple unto God. It's most likely that this temple must be 
on the earth for the fulfillment of what Daniel, Jesus, and Paul said regarding the abomination of desolation. Man, me and Daniel were, were, he was giving me a history lesson when we were <laughs> in prayer, and, and this was kind of brought up, uh, you know. So, I mean, all these things are going to happen. The, the prophet Daniel told us that the Antichrist would break his covenant with the Jewish people, bringing sacrifice and offerings to an end. The Antichrist will defile the temple by setting some, uh, something abominable there. You can read about that in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. Also, Daniel chapter 11, verse 31. I mean, there's a, <laughs> there's a lot in Daniel that you can read about that. Uh, Jesus said to look for an abomination standing in the holy place, which would be the pivotal sign that the season of God's wrath was upon the earth. That's in Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 through 16. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 21. So, I mean, just, just that alone, right? If we're, I know nobody knows the time of the day. Um, I know we're getting close to all that. But that, that should rest your, your anxiety or, or ease you up about all the other stuff that's happening and keep you focused on what's the task at hand right now. The task at hand is for me to live above reproach, me to be a clean vessel, me to be a faithful witness. And get out there in your family, get out there in your community, whatever. You just need to be a, a reflecting light of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Paul told us that the Antichrist would sit in the temple as God. The nerve of the enemy. Counterfeit. But we shouldn't be surprised, right? That's what he does. <laughs> That's what he does. He's a counterfeit. Second Thessalonians chapter two, verses three and four tells us, let no one deceive you in any way for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. The concept of the abomination of desolation is often spiritualized with explaining it as idolatrous worship established in the hearts of God's people, his temple. But in what sense can people be called God's temple if they worship Satan himself? Certainly, this isn't the most plain or straightforward interpretation. The simpler explanation of all these passages is to see a real Jewish temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem yet to be built but coming soon. All you have to do is Google it. You can find out this information for yourself. Today, there are Jewish people very interested in rebuilding the temple and resuming sacrifices. And they're making preparations to do that exact thing right now as we speak. It's, it's, it's been going on for, for some time now, right? You can visit the Temple Institute in the Jewish quarter of the old city in Jerusalem. There are a group of very dedicated Jewish people who are dedicated to rebuilding the temple. And they are attempting to educate the public and raise awareness for a new temple. They are trying to replicate everything. For this new temple, down to the specific pots and pans that are used for sacrifice. You see, Israel is a nation again since 19, what, 47, 48, and efforts to rebuild the temple are real. This isn't a game. This isn't Hollywood. This is prophecy being fulfilled. 
in real time. The main Jewish group leading the charge to rebuild the temple is an organization called Faithful to Faithful of the Temple Mount, who say they will continue their efforts to reestablish the Jewish temple on the mount. They're, they're not going to stop, and it's going to be fulfilled because this is part of the Lord's plan. One leader is quoted to say, we shall continue our struggle until the Israeli flag is flying from the Dome of the Rock. Right now, there are students being trained for the priesthood, learning how to conduct animal sacrifices in the rebuilt temple. So they can do this because they want to go back to what they were doing before everything was broken up. So it's important for us to understand that most Jews, whether they are religious or secular, do not care one bit about building a temple. And if there were one to be rebuilt, sacrifices would be difficult in a day of (laughs) aggressive animal rights activists. You can't kill that animal. Peter would have a fit about these animals being sacrificed. Yet there is a small Again, highly dedicated group of people who live to see a rebuilt temple, excuse me. And this temple, like I said, will fulfill prophecy. Rightly, Christians get excited when they see the efforts of this rebuild of the temple. But at the same time, we must understand that the basic impulse behind rebuilding the temple is not for God at all. But it is for the desire to have a place for a sacrifice of sins. But we have to understand this. We as Christians believe that Christ died for our sins. He finished that work of sacrificial uh, work upon the cross. There, any kind of further sacrifice would be a, an offense to God because it denies the finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. You see, that's where the, the difference between uh, the, the chosen Jewish people who are still in the dark and Gentiles who know there are some Jews who are awoken to the truth, but that's where the difference lies. There's no more need for animal sacrifice, but this has to happen because, again, as it's been said, the, the, the enemy has to sit there in the temple and, and, and basically desecrate it. John chapter 5 verse 43 tells us, I have come in my father's name and you did not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. And this is speaking of the the Antichrist that the Jewish people are going to receive as their Messiah, but they're going to be falsely misled. And for many, it will be too late, but some will repent in time. All right, here we go into the next verse. It says in verse two, but do not measure the court outside the temple, leave that out for it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. The outer court need not be measured because... It was destroyed. Perhaps this is because the outer court of this rebuilt temple include the Islamic dome and the rock shrine, which currently stands on the temple mount and is a point of great hostility. We know this between Muslims and Jews. They've been fighting over this land for so long. When the Romans conquered Jerusalem in A.D. 70, they destroyed the city so completely that the foundations of the old temple can't even be easily found. Most have assumed that the dome of the rock stands on the place of the old temple. But as you've known, if you've done any uh, research about this, some evidence shows that the temple may have stood on the north where the dome of the rock is today. And if that temple were to be rebuilt as its old place, the dome of the rock would be in the outer courts. If this is the case, then it would explain why the angel told John, leave out the court 
which is outside the temple and do not measure it because it's been given over to the Gentiles. And again, the scripture says they will tread on the holy city underfoot. The holy city, Jerusalem, will be tread underfoot for a period of 42 months, which equals 1,260 days, three and a half years. This trampling of Jerusalem by the Gentiles probably takes place in the last half of the final seven-year period described once again in Daniel chapter 11, verses 26 and 27, when the Antichrist pours out his fury on the people of Israel. Again, to tread underfoot means to trample with contempt. It means to have no heart, no mercy, to go in bloodthirsty and just obliterate all in that individual's path. All right. Let's look at verses three and six, three down through six, excuse me. And it says, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours out from their mouths and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Wow, that's uh, some heavy stuff going on right there. So this introduces the two witnesses that we see here. These characters of their ministry, the character of their ministry is prophetic, so they prophesy, they preach and demonstrate repentance because they're clothed in sackcloth. We all know that from the Old Testament. That means that there's mourning because of sin. They have an effective ministry because the Lord himself will give them power. You see, the two witnesses indeed serve with power, such power, in fact, that they are able to withstand uh, antagonism from the world for three and a half years. And the next we see that they are the two olive trees and the two lampstands. The witnesses have a unique, continual empowering from the Holy Spirit, as shown in Zechariah's olive trees and oil lamps picture. If you... Uh, if you go to Zechariah chapter 4, verses 2 through 3, it speaks about this. I'll read it now. And it says, And he said to me, What do you see? I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand, lamp stand, excuse me, all of gold with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. This passage from Zechariah has its first application in, with these two men uh, in Zechariah's day, Joshua and Zerubbabel. Just as these two witnesses were raised up to be lampstands of witnesses for God and were empowered by olive oil representing the power of the Holy Spirit, so these two witnesses in this chapter of uh, Revelation 11 will likewise execute their prophetic office, so to speak. The application is this. From Zechariah, oil lamps were filled from olive trees directly, which filled the lamps. This is a picture of continual abundance and supply. This is the Lord supplying them with the strength that they need and the power they need to fulfill the work that the Lord has for them. You see, if we are to be witnesses, we must first have something to witness. And this is where your personal relationship with Jesus Christ comes into play. 
This shows us that the importance of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, right? Because we can't witness if we don't have a relationship with Christ. But once we establish a relationship with God, then we must have the power of the Holy Spirit to bring forth the story of what we have witnessed effectively, meaning we can share our testimony. We can share how the Lord has taken us from trashy to classy, how we're now born again, how we're now we're of a new life. And this is what's going on with these witnesses here in this time. And the next thing we see is it says, if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. This is not like some dragon, but this is very real as what will happen to those who oppose God's chosen people in this time. You see, the two witnesses have special protection from God, similar to Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 1. These have power to shut heaven and again, power over the waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Now, this is not some bloodthirsty thing. These People, these men are led by the Holy Spirit. And remember, we have to understand that the judgment that falls upon uh, the earth is a righteous judgment. It's something that people have brought upon themselves for the rebellion of uh, their hearts towards a holy, just God and for trampling upon the blood of Christ as if it was common and not receiving the free gift of salvation that that only he can offer. You see, so many people, they, they don't like the idea of Jesus being the only way, the only truth, and the only life, but he's the only one who's qualified to save. And that's why Jesus Christ has such a unique position amongst human beings. No other deity, no other God, little g, can do that and claim that. And that's why it is, that's why these this wrath that's coming upon the world is so strict and so direct and, and it seems so vicious in a sense but it is justified because people have chosen over and over again to rebel and it's not a good thing these two witnesses again have power to bring drought similar to the power of elisha elijah excuse me and you can read about that in james chapter 5 verse 17 down through 18 and also Moses in Exodus chapter 7 verse 12. Lastly, we see uh, these three words, they, these, them. In ancient Greek grammar, all the nouns used to speak of the two witnesses in this passage are in the masculine gender. These two witnesses are definitely two men. I know some people don't like to hear that, not saying here, anybody here, but uh, you know, people are like, well, couldn't they be women? Maybe they could be, I don't want to get off into other topics, but they're men. God has chosen two men to, uh, to be witnesses and to do his work that he's called here in this uh, passage, which we'll see take place in the future. All right, now we're looking at verses 7 down through 10, and it says, And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. 
making war against them, overcoming them and killing them. These two witnesses are killed by the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit, who is most likely Satan himself, but their ministry is not cut short. They fully accomplish their task. You see, when they finish their testimony, the application is this. We cannot be taken off this earth until we finish our testimony. You should revel in that. God is going to give you the allotted time that he wants for you to live on this earth. You see, the devil does not have the power to cut off our lives. We are witnesses of the Lord and he will protect us until our testimony is finished. Acts chapter 17 verse 26 tells us, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods of the boundaries of their dwelling place. We all have a period of time. And so we need to be wise in how we utilize our time, the days that he's given us. Today, how he gives us. May we not let our days be idle and just slip away and may we not just waste the days and the time that the Lord has given us. Amen. Amen. This passage illustrates the difference between being a witness and giving a testimony. A witness is not something we do. It is who we are. Giving testimony is what a witness does. You see, we have to understand the difference and so we can clearly do the work that the Lord has called us to, to do. And next we see, and their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Gomorrah, where also our Lord was crucified. These two witnesses are killed in the city of Jerusalem, which is described in three terms as Sodom, speaking of immorality, as Egypt, speaking of oppression and slavery, and as the great city, a term often applied to Babylon, the headquarters of the Antichrist. If during the first three and one and half years, Jerusalem's leadership is in fellowship with the Antichrist, it's easy to see how these titles apply. Any city in love with the Antichrist or entering into a covenant relationship with him could be called Sodom, Egypt, or Babylon. And we see next it says that those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, making merry and sending gifts to one another. How blinded these people are. The earth saw and rejoiced over the deaths of these two witnesses. The fact that it is seen by people, all people, tribes, tongues, and nations is perhaps a prophecy of modern mass media. It's not far-fetched, right? We live in the age where the World Wide Web, I mean, you can get information like that. All you have to do is click one button and you can get a feed from across the other side of the world in real time. Something like live from Jerusalem and just seeing in this amazing scene that's described here in Scripture. It's crazy to think about, but this is possibly what can happen when this goes down. The idea is also that the world treats these two witnesses in a humiliating manner because to have one's dead body live for all to view is the worst humiliation a person could suffer from his enemies and not allowing them to be buried and put into the grave. Because these two witnesses tormented those who dwell on the earth, this is where we see the reason why these people are so happy and they're giving presents, they're cheering. It's crazy that they, they're, they're glorying over these dead witnesses. The preaching of these two witnesses and their call to repentance was a torment for many because they could not stand to hear the truth while they loved their lives of lies. But this shouldn't sound 
far from us, right? This should sound very familiar. I mean, think of Jesus Christ himself. Think of John the Baptist. Think of uh, Stephen, right? The list goes on. The application is this. If you love your life and this world more than you love Jesus Christ, when conviction sets in, you will be tormented by your conviction rather than convicted by it. Meaning it will cause you to well up with anger and hate towards God rather than producing you a desire to repent. And we have to check ourselves on this and we have to see what is going on with my heart. It, it, are the things that the Lord's exposing to me, is it causing me to, to, to repent or is it causing me to be frustrated and mad and lash out at him and lash out at people? Humility is a beautiful thing and conviction is a beautiful thing. Don't ever let your heart get seared and your conscience get seared to where you no longer feel pricked in your heart when things go on in your life. Remember, if you're a child of the Most High, you will be reproved. You will be corrected. It's a good thing. It's okay. And we were talking about in prayer earlier, the fact that, you know, uh, if we don't ask for wisdom, we're, we're like little children. We don't know what to do. We're like Tirza, running run around. She don't know what to do. She needs wisdom. And she's banking on her parents to guide her in the right direction. And we're the same way. We're like little children. And we're like, you know, we need our, 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 our heavenly father to, to guide us in the right way to go. And that's why, again, the relationship with Jesus Christ is central to, to us doing anything good in this life. Amen. All right, here we go. This is the last three verses and we'll be done. 11 down through 14. It says, but after the three and a half days, a, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. And the second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. So after all this crazy stuff going on and, and, and these witnesses doing mighty works for the Lord and, and, and rebuking these people and telling them they need to repent. And after their lives have been taken and after they've been humiliated, lying in the street, dead for three and a half days, then all of a sudden they stood up. <laughs> they stood up. It, even, you know, it's it's hard for us to, 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 to try to conceive because, because, you know, we're so inculcated with all kind of junk. Like we think... You know, resurrecting is like a zombie movie or something because that's all we see. We see a bunch of nonsense, a bunch of Hollywood trash that's, that's just that's just satanic spook that just tries to infiltrate our minds. But the fact is, these witnesses will stand to their feet, and great fear fell upon all those who saw. As this happens before the eyes of the watching world, the enemies of these two witnesses are horrified and astonished. As believers in Jesus Christ, we need to know we have not been given a spirit of fear, but instead we'd be, we have been given the Holy Spirit. I love this verse. This is, I mean, I don't know, life verses are real. This is a life verse for me for sure. I tell this to my kids every day. 1 John 4.18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love cast out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love man 
Don't you want to be perfected in Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is perfect love. He's the one who casts out all that fear. It's like when the room is dark. I come in here uh, Sunday morning and the room is dark. It's turning out. As soon as I turn on that switch, the darkness just runs. It flees. It's gone. And all of a sudden we have this electrical light. It's the same thing with fear in our lives. When Jesus Christ is at the helm of our lives and we call upon the name of Jesus, that fear has to leave. It cannot be in the same vicinity as the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's what we have to know and cling to whenever we feel any kind of anxiety, any kind of stress, any kind of dread coming upon you. You have to just be in with the Lord and just call upon him. Man, the name of Jesus Christ is so powerful. There's no other name that can do that. There's no other there's no other being that can do that. It's only the Lord God Almighty. Amen. Amen. He says, come up here. (laughs) The earth was not worthy of these two witnesses. So God simply calls them home and they are ascended to heaven on a cloud or in a cloud, excuse me. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake. An earthquake brings judgment and moves many to give glory to God. But it remains to be seen if this will become true repentance unto salvation. We don't know. The scripture doesn't tell us, but we know that they, 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 they definitely gave God glory and they were freaked out of their minds of what happened. Next, we see the identity of these two witnesses. Many uh, interpreters see these two witnesses as symbolic of the entire church in the tribulation period or as symbols of the law and the prophets. Most plain and straightforward interpretation seems that as two real individuals, not a symbolic representation Who they are must not be terribly important or we would have been told exactly who they are. I don't want to go into the whole spew, but I'll just share a little bit. If the two witnesses are identified with any two individuals from the past, the leading candidates would probably be Elisha, Moses, or Enoch. Or maybe these are merely two believers ministering in the spirit and power of these great men, just as John the Baptist went forth in the spirit in the power of Elisha. Some think Enoch because he was carried up to heaven. Remember, he didn't die. Some think Elisha is one of the witnesses because his ministry seemed to be like one of these two witnesses. He was carried up to heaven. The enemies of Elisha were destroyed by fire. Elisha has a unique conference with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Some think maybe Moses because of uh, his witnesses, that his ministry seemed to be like one of these men. He seemed to have a special purpose in the body. Remember, because Satan wanted Moses' body. The enemies of Moses were uh, destroyed by fire. And Moses, again, was seen at the Mount of Transfiguration. The reality is this. The Lord God is in full control. That's that's what we need to rest on. The Lord God is in full control, meaning nothing happens within history catching him off guard. He has a purpose for everything that occurs and everything, even the evil things in life, he will eventually get glory out of and all will have to bow down to him. All of his true children will one day be reconciled to him and and he will resurrect them to himself to display his power And glory over sin, death, and the grave, and Satan forever. Amen? As the worship team comes up, I'll leave you with this last verse 
Hopefully this encourages you as you leave here today. Isaiah chapter 25, verses 8 and 9, it says, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people. He will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be It will be he said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that we can rest in you. We can rest in the hope that you've provided through your son, Jesus Christ. We don't have to be swayed one way or another because of the circumstances of life. We don't have to run around scared. We don't have to be in in anxiety type of lifestyle because of the things we see going on around us. But we can serve you. We can live for you. We can honor you. And we can receive peace and joy unspeakable if we would simply trust in you. Your word says, whoever believes will not perish. Do we believe? It takes belief to believe Jesus Christ, who he is, who he says he is. Father, may you give us that kind of saving faith today. May we believe and trust wholeheartedly that your son came to this earth and lived a perfect life died and resurrected and now we have that same power living within us through the person of the holy spirit father i pray that you would continue to receive all honor and glory and may we continue to live for you father i thank you and praise you we pray this all in jesus christ's wonderful name amen